Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello, and welcome everybody to another episode of Pot Strickland. This episode 319. I'm your host, Shwini Poo, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stacy. That is at StacyPan89 on Twitter. Stacy, how are you doing on this Monday afternoon? Doing pretty well. It's a nice release from the heat. Uh, I don't know about where you're at, but uh, it was brutal last week. It's been a couple, <laughs> couple of decent days. Yeah, yeah, last week was brutal. Sunday was good. Or yesterday was good. I should say today was good news. So uh, hopefully we get more of the good weather and less of the extreme heat where you can't step outside of your house weather. Um, but before we get started, I do have to make a few announcements. The first being that the Strickland has an Instagram. Check that out. That is at strict.land on Instagram. Posting all kinds of new content on there. The Strickland also has merchandise available on our website. Check that out. That is on our website. You can find anything you like on there. T-shirts, sweatshirts, hats, coffee mugs, even water bottles. You name it, we got it. Again, check that out on our website. The Strickland also has a YouTube channel YouTube channel where, if you are currently watching this, it's on YouTube. And if you have not done so already, please hit like and subscribe to the channel. That would be a huge help to us. The Strickland also has a Patreon, which you can subscribe to. There are a number of different tiers. There's a six-star tier that gets you access to Pod Strickland. This podcast that I host every Friday with Prez, you also get access to the Strickland Mailbag, hosted by Andrew Steele, a.k.a. Doug, a.k.a. The Doug Bag, alongside Dallas Amico. You also get access to the Strickland Discord, where the conversation never stops. There are further tiers. There is a $9 tier that gets you access to Strickland, my solo pod, where I rant and rave about the next even more. You also get access to wonderful premium articles by Matthew Miranda, one of the best in the business. There are, the, there are further tiers. There's a $15 tier, $30 tier, $50 tier, $100 tier. Those go with a variety of additional benefits, like listening on a pod recordings, merchandise discounts, and even potentially co-hosting a podcast alongside yours truly one day, whether you choose to subscribe or not, and this would be possible without you. And none of this would be possible without Bet Online, which is your number one source for all your betting needs. Get the latest odds, lines, and match reports for baseball, boxing, golf, and more. BetOnline continues to be the fastest and easiest way to place your wagers, including live betting and your favorite casino and card games available to play right from your phone. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and get in on the action. Remember to use promo code Believe BLEAV for your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, where the game starts. And, um, again, this is the downtime in the offseason. But, let's get started. Um... There was one major, not major, I guess, but there was one interesting piece of reporting that came out last week from the uh, very, very well-regarded and very well-liked by um, certainly myself and I would say by most people, friend of the pod, Stefan Bondi of the Daily News. Uh, he He's not a friend of the pod, by the way. It's totally joking. He probably hates us. I definitely don't like him. Um, he reported that Josh Hart, will be signing an extension four years, $75 million, um, whenever that's whenever he becomes eligible for that, which I believe is... I know it's in August. I want to say August 9th, 
Uh, I could be wrong on that. But yeah, four-year, $75 million is what he is reporting is the likely number for that extension. Then he also reported that Emmanuel Quickly is looking for a bit more than that number, which makes sense to me anyway. Um, I guess what are your thoughts on that? Because, I don't know, that's really the only fucking actual news we got this past week. Do you think Dylan Mar- Brooks is on a fair contract? Um, I think if Dylan Brooks, if you if Dylan Brooks was named fucking Steve McDonald, Frank Delakina, yeah, and he wasn't a raging asshole, everybody would think that contract is fine, even with his extreme inefficiency as a scorer. Um, he's a really really impactful defender. I think he was pretty much always in Memphis's best lineups, at least in terms of like net rating and all that type of shit. So is that a fair contract? Uh, no, but that has that's not just about him as a player, right? So like, it's probably fine in terms of just basketball. When you factor in the other stuff, it's a little more complicated. Do you think Josh Hart is better at basketball than Dylan Brooks? Mm, I think I enjoy watching him play basketball more. Because a lot of the impact stats, I don't think Hart blows you away as an on-ball defender, but like a lot of the, I think they have a good mix of on-ball guys like Grimes. McBride doesn't play a lot, but he's in that boat. Even RJ is a very good on-ball defender. Uh, with you know a couple of these guys, you know, Quick and, and Hart is kind of in the same mold as quickly as someone who is very impactful off-ball. And on the glass, uh, in a way that kind of maybe shortchanges or overshadows the fact that just based on eye tests, you might see, you know, on ball, it doesn't pop as much as like a, a lockdown. I'm going to take your best player and take him out of the games type of thing. So to me, it's like if Josh Hart is getting four for 75 in a world where Isaiah Stewart's getting four for 64, Dylan Brooks getting four for 80, like contracts are going up, the cap is going up. Um, I don't think that's a bad deal. You you see how he's impactful he is. And people talk about the shooting. If you don't pair him with another wing who can't shoot, like he can hit open corner threes. He probably should shoot them a little bit more than he does, and he's not a great shooter by any means. But he is reliable. It's like a weird in-between between guys who are just straight-up liabilities. People are going to leave him open, but you know I don't think he's going to shoot 60% from three again. But over the last few seasons, he's on low volume, but on enough volume where you has those opportunities, you know, on a team that is going to get him those opportunities with, with rim pressure guys like Brunson, like Randall, like, um, like RJ, like quickly. I, I don't think that's a bad contract at all. Uh, and I don't think the fact that quickly wants more um, is necessarily a, a bad thing either. We can get into quickly afterwards, but on the hard thing, do you think this is an overpay? And if you take it in totality, the fact that they did give up their first round pick this year, um, after you know they already traded a first for Cam to get that, um, you know, in totality, do you still look at this as a good move for the Knicks? And understanding some costs, maybe not worth talking about, but you know, curious about your your overall um, take on the Josh Hart, um, you know, his involvement with the Knicks up to now. Yeah, um, I think the contract is fine. Uh, it my my only like reservation on it has really I, I 
I think he's probably worth the number in a vacuum, especially given where the uh, the salary cap is projected to be going. Again, all the reporting is that you're looking at a cap environment where the expectation is it jumps 10% year on year. So um, in that context, like I don't think the number is a huge problem. I just wonder, like, and there's no way to know this stuff. I mean, I just don't know what team was going to offer more or similar um, to, to that. And, so it's like one of those things where it's like, were you negotiating against yourself? Like, who's going to come in? I, I know that's not exactly how any of this works. Uh, so I don't know. Like, it would, it, it's also kind of stupid. It's like, yeah, it would make me a little bit happier if it was like 467 instead of 475 or something. But what does that really fucking mean in the grand scheme of things? I don't know. Probably not that much. So 475, honestly, like, it's, it's a solid deal. I think he's worth the money. Uh, he, he doesn't really need to do anything other than just, I mean, just keep playing the way he plays. Obviously, if he would be a little bit more willing as a three-point shooter, that'd be nice. But it's not, I think that's more of a playoff concern than it is a regular season issue. And even, I mean, what did he shoot in the playoffs? I don't think his percentage was bad. It was more. I mean, yeah, it's the, the volume. It's the when volume. He pl- and when he played with RJ, it was especially noticeable, but. You know, if they if you play them at the three and four together, I don't think that's that much of an issue either. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. Uh, it's obviously better. Thirty one percent from three in the playoffs on three attempts per game, so not great, but you know, not disastrous. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really care about the number. It's just about the actual spacing that it he provides. It's like at the three, he's not going to be a good spacer if he plays at the four. Him and RJ play the three and the four. It's a little bit, you probably work around that a lot easier than you can if you're playing it up the two and three. Um, and I, I do think if you play with the three, but it's like Brunson and Grimes are quickly and Grimes the one and two. I also think that's less, especially Randall can shoot now, right? He has the volume and gravity, I think. So I, I think that is also, it's just, I think when you play those two together, the two and three, as you mentioned, that's the only time I think it's really been problematic. Yeah. Um, so I'm fine with this number. I think it's a fine deal. I don't think it's – this is one of those contracts I, I don't anticipate it being like, oh, my God, what a steal. But it's a fine contract. You basically It'll be movable. To, I mean, he's what? 20, he's 28. So Yeah, you have to play – you have to pay solid wings around this number. So, I mean, just for some comparison, like this 475 is roughly the kind of money you're talking about, like Alan Crabb. And, Fucking Kent Bazemore and guys like that were getting right. So, so is Josh Hart worth that contract in 2023 going into a new cap environment? Probably. Um, yeah, I think so. And then you also factor in he opted into the final year of his deal, so it's effectively a five-year, eighty-eight million dollar contract. Um, we'll see how they would structure the cap hits and all that type of thing, but it it shouldn't be. I mean, we want it to be descending, right? Yeah, you would ideally want it to be descending, but um, you know, if it if it's flat or if it's descending, it's fine. It's not going to kill you either way. It's not a cost prohibitive contract. Um, so, do you think it, do you think it makes it tougher to evaluate him because he is quote unquote, he's a wing, um, but he isn't like your kind of the package that you see like the guys you mentioned, and and most wings I think are usually 
either really good three-point shooters and mediocre defenders or really good defenders who can hit an open three. Um, but it's, it is that 3 and D archetype, which isn't exactly Josh Hart, even though he adds value in a lot of ways. Do you think that makes the evaluation a little bit more compli- complicated? Um, not really. I think he's... It's, is he worth the contract? Like, I don't think it's a lot more complex than that. He's got Well, flaws. when you look at market, right? Like, he's not like other wings, right? So it's a little bit difficult to compare. I mean, is he... Is there, like, some major difference between, say, him and, I don't know, fucking Bruce Brown? Or him and... Yeah, Dylan Brooks. That, that was honestly my only <laughs> drawback with the like. I loved the the Knicks had interest in Bruce Brown. My only drawback was he is a lot like Josh Hart. So yeah, and I mean he just went for a number that the Knicks couldn't get to either anyway, so it didn't really matter. Um, but on but yeah, shorter, on less years. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, I, I don't really think this is. I, I don't want to say again. I don't think it's like a slam dunk. Like oh my god, amazing, amazing value, but. Given, like, you got him to opt in. If Bondi's right, he's taking a little bit less than what his max extension that he was eligible for, which would have been four years, $81 million. Um, So it still feels like you're getting him to give up a little bit, uh, which seems to both, I mean, that speaks to somewhat of the culture you've established and the fact that he's comfortable here and and all those things, I think that has value. Um, And, you know, like, is it a sunk cost? Did they have to, like, do they have to bring him back because they go first-round pick to get him? Sure, but, like, I think that was already... They were going to bring him back. I mean, they, they made the trade. They didn't make the trade just to, like, have him for half a season. Like, they knew what they were doing. They wanted to keep him as a long-term piece. I think that's pretty obvious. And they had to get, they had to pay a price for him because there were other teams interested in service. So, um, yeah, like I, I don't, I think this is, this is fine. If that's the number, it's okay. The quickly part of it doesn't really concern me. I mean, I don't personally don't think any fan should be concerned when a report is like player wants more money than, or wants as much money as, you know, available to them or whatever it is. Like, so the same thing about Saquon. Yeah, I mean, those guys want to get paid because they don't have long careers. They they have to cash in when they can. And um, in Quickly's case, like, I actually find this number pretty interesting to me, the Josh Hart number, 475, because one thing I felt very strongly about when I talked about this previously is if I'm Emmanuel Quickly, I would be very uncomfortable. And I, I this is such a weird thing with, like, pro sports and in general, but I wouldn't, I would like, I, I don't think like he's, he's not going to get a max. Okay. We know that he's probably not going to get close to a max, but I feel like if you offer him less than Josh Hart, or even just like the same amount as Josh Hart, it's almost like an insult to him. Um, given the season he had, I know obviously it didn't end great in the playoffs, but like the, given the season he had and not just the season he had, but the variety of tasks he performed, the leap he made as a player overall, and then I think also just like the fact that he has not ever bitched or moaned or whined, at least not openly, um, when he wasn't starting his second year and he clearly should have, or when his role was kind of 
muddled. His first year should have yeah. starting by yeah, the way. Or, or when his role was muddled at the start of last season, or when his minutes weren't what he, I'm sure, would expected them to be. Like, he's not complaining. I think that has value when you're trying to kind of build a culture and all those type of things. And um, again, like the fact that he's just been a jack of all trades for them in so many different roles and, and capacities that, you know, I, it's just like, I think you need to pay him a little bit more. And that's fine because if you're basically talking about Josh Hart as a five-year, $88 million contract, like you can go to 5-100 or 5-105 for quickly, something like that. And he's still making less than your proverbial big three or whatever. Um, but he's making more than the Josh Hart, Josh Hart's of the world and, and guys that look, Josh Hart's a tremendous player. And I think that obviously his fit with different groupings of lineups that the Knicks have has, was really, really productive. So I don't want to downplay that at all, but he doesn't drive offense in a way that quickly has demonstrated he's capable of. And that's just something that you generally need to pay up more, pay up for more um, than what Josh Hart does. Right. And so like, I think, you're as a front office, you're always trying to negotiate these things carefully. And there's a human element to this stuff. You know, these guys are, they, they're all human. They're all going to want certain things. Um, and yeah, like, I think that's an important little just segment of both negotiations. Um, and also like just to retain quickly, even if ultimately he's going to get traded in like a year or two down the line or whatever it is, um, keeping him at a number like that keeps him happy, and I think it retains his asset value in a strong position for the Knicks. Yeah, no, I don't think. Uh, I think that um, I also think there's a lot of people. Um, so I, I know you weren't as concerned about the playoffs. Um, I think I'm a little bit less on the. You know, it's Tibbs's fault for not getting him involved. Part of that is you. The fact of the matter is, I, I, you know, said this in Discord. You know, we posted it from the main account today. You know, do you know what Brunson's stats were when he played in the playoffs at age twenty-three? Uh, I mean, I'm assuming they weren't good because Rick Carla basically was like, "Oh he yeah, no, he's he, not he good. didn't play in the playoffs at age yeah. twenty-three. Yeah, and he wasn't good. He didn't his play first time around as a twenty-four-year-old. His stats are pretty similar to Quickly's now because of how good he was even at that age as a as a rim pressure guy. He put up close to 63 true shooting, um, which for his shot profile is, is nuts, and it's not like that has changed. Um, but if you look at, you know, if you look at the production from the two, they're very similar. Um, and he didn't play in the playoffs a 24-year-old. If you look at guys who Yeah, are, I mean, his role got cut pretty drastically in those playoffs. He played seven games. He played all seven games of the, of the series that Dallas played, uh, but he only played 114 minutes total. And, like, I mean, this was widely discussed at the time like they got destroyed in his minutes and rick carlisle more or less was just like you're not playable and didn't use him for more than a few minutes at a time in the final few games of that series so and maybe that and then they decided right like many people on twitter (laughs) have decided that if you can't play in the playoffs based on this sample size you know you're not worth the contract you want i think most people would now agree that was an egregious mistake by dallas but the point is, you know, I think it's fair. Um, but I, I've said this. The thing is this. It's it's become this RJ versus quickly versus Grimes thing. The reality is, like, unless you are one of the, like, 
the fact that Anthony Edwards did what he did in the playoffs, like we don't talk about how incredible that is. Most guys are not good at a young age in the playoffs. It's a fact. Like guys like him or even Trey Young, right? And, and especially guys who are who are perimeter players because your jump shot is so important and there's no substitute for reps. There's very few like look at the guys who've come into the league as really good shooters. Maybe if Steph came as a freshman, he's just Steph, so it wouldn't have mattered. But he he did spend three years in college. Desmond Bain came out at twenty three. Um, you know, most of these guys who come in as like Corey Kispert spent three four years in college. Most of these guys who come out like to be a shooter, especially a pull up shooter, it takes time for that to translate. It's why I'm still, by the way, not out on a guy like Bones Island. Like, if you have that floor of interior shot making, of pull up shooting, saying nothing about Quickly's defense, by the way, right? Like, everyone loves to say, "Well, he didn't show up in the playoffs." Well, look at look at the defense. He was pretty impactful on defense. Um, everyone loves to say that. It's it's just assuming there's not going to be an improvement, and the reason for that is, well, he's not super athletic. That's it, though, because we have seen, and Brunson is an example of a guy who wasn't super athletic. Um, and I'm not saying quickly, you know, I, I brought this up on the Discord and people rightfully pointed out Brunson is a top three, I, I would say top three ball handler, like no lower than a fifth in the league, right? The only guys, honestly, as ball handlers I'm taking over him are Steph and Kyrie. I think Chris Paul is washed, but, you know, sure, if you want to include him, I think is is Brunson a better ball handler than, Dave, than Dame? I think so. Is he better than ball handler than, than Ja or any of these guys? Of course. Um, he's an elite ball handler. Better than Luca? Yeah, at that. Um, so, but the but with quickly, when you have kind of the shot making he has, when you've developed the floor that he has, people are just assuming that this is just who he is going forward. That makes very little sense. But even if it was just who he was, and as impactful as he's been, you're basically betting that the fact that he missed it bunch of open catch and shoot shots is going to last which i don't know and and at that point is he worth 20 million dollars a year i mean is he a better player than jordan Poole? i think so is he a better player than uh he's i i mean austin reeves got it on a really good contract i think yeah, the, the reeves thing is just stupid because he was a restricted free agent and then nobody had money and nobody wanted to like the assumption was the Lakers would match even whatever other teams could offer. So it's like, well, do you want to keep your cap space to just throw an offer sheet out, which is likely going to get matched, and then, you know, now you have a bunch of cap space, but there's nobody left to sign. Like, I, if Reeves was an unrestricted free agent, he would there's, yeah, there, yeah, there's no question. And and forget that, even if he was allowed to get more from the Lakers, he would have gotten more from the Lakers themselves. Like, his situation is so not applicable to not, forget quickly for to, to like any of these other guys that are effectively extension eligible, right? These guys that finished their third year in the NBA are extension eligible now. Um, like he, he's just not c- comparable to those go- to those guys. Just his contractual situation is just stupid. Yeah, the Lakers again uh, somehow get fortune uh, to smile on them, just as they absolutely needed to, because they've never been lucky or fortunate ever before. I actually think comparing the Lakers front office to the Knicks front office would be an interesting exercise because both teams have prioritized scouting. Both teams have a former agent as the uh, the GM or, or the head of operations. Um, and I think both have, like, yeah, that Russ trade was awful, but they turned it into a positive. 
like they they turned him into I don't know if they turned the whole thing to positive, but they turned that into a positive value. Getting back to quickly, though, I, I would I, yeah, I, I would say like the Lakers fucked up the rust trade, so they've recovered well, which you deserve credit for. That trade sucked, but they did recover well, and like you know I, we we talked about this with Leon and and what they did last summer, where it's like okay, well. Okay, fine. The 2021 summer wasn't great, but like, what do you? You can keep saying that, and then the thing is, they adjusted well, so they get credit for that too. So it's like, you know, and they they did add Quentin Grimes, right? So if you want to, yeah, yeah. So I mean, and the same thing goes with Lakers, right? Like they, yeah, they did the rust trade, which is stupid, but they also found Austin Reeves that summer. So like, you know, there's good and bad at all times, and yeah, no matter what, like I'm. I mean, it's just so fucking annoying how everything always works out for the Lakers, but they have recovered well from what seemed like, holy shit, this might just fuck them over for a long time. Yeah. Um, but getting back to quickly, what do you think is the next step for him, right? I mean, I don't think he's there. Maybe you disagree. I don't think he's there yet as a primary option every night. Um, I think there's going to be some variance. But um, what do you think is like kind of the because I I look at Brunson and you look at the development that's happened for him it was more going inside out where from quickly I think it's more developing continuing to develop some of that mid range game and adding some creativity to his finishes but do you think that's the kind of development path that he can follow? Um. So again, these splits are they are what they are. He started twenty seven games in his career. Uh, quickly, thirty-seven and a half minutes in those games. He's averaging twenty-one point seven points, five rebounds, five assists, forty-six, thirty-nine, eighty splits, fifty-nine true shooting, twenty-two point eight usage. Um, you know, is that all sustainable? And I there's no way to answer that. But twenty-seven games is at least. I mean, that is a sample. That is not some bullshit number. Um, his numbers last season as a starter were. Wait for it. Um, You're saying 2021. Yeah, no, just just his this past season. Um, so 2022, 23. 38.6 minutes per game as a starter. 22.6 points, 5.4 rebounds, 5.1 assists. Uh, 47, 40, 85 splits. 60 and a half for shooting. 22.3 usage. Um, let's say that I, mean, I think the career sample is probably closer to reality than just looking at last year. Um, but, uh, you know, do I think he can get the level of Brunson's at? I, I don't know. And it's I worth can... noting that that whole sample came with the next best player out, right? So this is yeah. nothing, this is, doesn't even include, you know, I mean, his volume would go down with Brunson out there, but his efficiency would probably be even better. Like 62 shooting with Randall is the only other really shot creators. Yeah, I mean, he had a couple games with Brunson where he was starting because RJ was out. But yeah, for the most part, he played those games without Brunson. Um, but I think, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't believe that he'll ever be as capable a scorer as Brunson is, just because Brunson's that good. Yeah, it's also just very, very rare that guards can score at all three levels the way that Brunson does. Like I like I think Dame's awesome. I don't think Dame is even a very good mid range scorer. Like he just not something that he really does that well. Um, you know, so it's not it's not easy for guards. And so Especially um, smaller guards, right? Because a lot of that is close quarters shooting over someone. 
which is just yeah, difficult I, to do. I also I, I never really know. I'm always like one. I I never really understand the small guard thing. So I'm just like, are there a bunch of guards that are like big? Like Steph is like people are like, oh, he's a smaller guard. I'm like, he's like. Well, I think the people six, that excel two, in six, the mid range, the people that excel, like even Steph, like there's not a whole lot of pull up mid range game in the front. Like it's a lot of floaters. Um, you know, it's not his game is very different than Brunson. Like if you think about the guys who are good in the mid range. You know, DeRozan six seven, obviously KD six ten. Um, if you talk, the only really small guard who's had a lot of success in the mid range has been Chris Paul. Maybe that's the best analog for Brunson's at least scoring game. Obviously, I think that um, as a distributor, it's it's not the same. But um, but it, it's just I think it's more difficult for for non wings. Let's put it like that. Forget small guards, just like you know, players under six five. Yeah, I mean that's that's fine. Um I would just say like I I would Yeah, I so I don't see quickly having that type of scoring upside. And particularly regular season is one thing, but you know, when you're talking about playoff moments, you know, just look at what Brunson was doing at various moments. Like I, I don't see that. I don't see that for most people most the vast majority of players. It's not exactly a huge criticism there. Um but what I do think is what quickly does obviously defensively and then um, just I think his ability to play different roles has tremendous value. And so um, I just think he's a guy that gives you lineup flexibility and options that not a lot of guards are capable of. A guy who, who played very well in the playoffs to, to a certain degree um, that I don't think is anywhere near as good as quickly, but had nice moments and I think showed that showed what the value of guards like this are is Gabe Vincent. You know, he signed a three-year, $33 million contract with the Lakers, um, you know, which he's definitely, he's probably worth that. But, like, I, I think he just got hot in the playoffs. But he does have that ability to, and he's oh, way older than Quick, too. I mean, at 23, he's not doing anything that quickly he's done. He's 27 now, maybe 28 even. But he, he has that ability to play on and off ball. Like, there are a bunch of guards that do this, right? Like, Kyle Lowry is one of the best at it. Steph is obviously insane and completely breaks the mold. Um, you know, it, so I think that quickly falls into like this tree of guards. And I, I'm always a big fan of those guards because I think they give you options. Um, what do I think he needs to get better at? I mean, for one, and I think this is where Miami really kind of, they sat on this stuff is his, when he drives, He's always trying to get back to his right. And I think they were aware of that. They kind of knew his reads on when he tried to step in for a floater and all those type of things. And um, it kind of, it definitely got him out of sorts. So def improving his ball handling and finishing and, and all that type of stuff, just being more comfortable going to his left. Uh, I think he also has to get rid of this habit he has of driving to around the free throw line or a little bit lower than picking up his dribble and then looking to swing the ball back out. That's fine in the regular season. It's fine against a lot of teams, but um, against a team as disciplined as Miami was in that series, I think that got him into trouble in a few moments also. He will continue to improve his strength because that's just something that he clearly has focused on throughout his career. He's talked about it uh, previously. I think that's definitely important for him. The more, the stronger he can get, the more I think his dribble drive game becomes viable and um, increases his ability to score in a variety of different ways. And then, like, I don't know, I think, and I, I, this one I really 
am a little confused by because it feels like this was a tactical choice that went over with the whole team. But like, I would like to see him and just generally everybody in the team just drive and kick more than they were at most of last season. Um, and when he started games, I think we've seen him do that more. So I wonder if maybe it's like more of a role specific thing than, than anything else. But um, those are like the main things. Like, I don't think there's a lot of, it's refining what he's already been working on. And then if there's one thing I would be like, add this to your bag or something, it would just be like any type of consistent mid range jumper, like not, not floater, like actual jump shot. Um, I think that would be a very, very nice skill addition for him, but that's also not, again, Which, we just I mean, talked he about splashed it. that. Yeah, he he started doing the thing where he'd pick up the dribble, then spin back and shoot that. Um, and I just I think with his release point, it's hard for him to just pull up on a dime from the mid range and shoot. But um, if he could add that, you know, in, like upping his release point, you know, basically like elevating his release point in the mid range, that would be a nice bonus. But um, yeah, I mean, I just don't really see his next contract being like a problem. Um, like it, it's going to be a value for the Knicks, and I think it'll be looked at as a value for a lot of teams around the league once we start getting, you know, especially once you start seeing the contracts next summer and the summer after that. Um, I think the value of a lot of these deals that, and it's not just the Knicks, but like a lot of teams got clowned for a variety of contracts this summer, and I'm just like, I'm kind of wondering, like, well, you know, a year from now, two years from now, are those contracts really even that bad, or might they just be good? Um, so yeah, if the Knicks. If they can get this done five one ten five one twenty whatever the hell it is, um, I think that'd be really nice. That also locks him in. I think through his age twenty nine season, so you're getting like prime years out of him. Um, and again, we talked about this. Like he has value to this current Knicks team because he is a good player and he can fill in a variety of roles when you need him to. And I think retaining that asset is really really important for them. And obviously as an asset, he becomes more valuable if he is locked in on a contract than, you know, if he's going to be entering restricted free agency next summer. Do you have concerns long-term about his ability to score efficiently in the playoffs, given maybe some of the shortcomings in terms of physical tools and the fact that he's not like a nuclear shooter? Sorry, say that again? Like Do you physical have, tools? Yeah, given like, I no. mean, he has the length, we know that he's reasonably quick but um you know in terms of not have you know he doesn't have like really that blow by speed um and he's not like a steph level shooter or even like a, a dame level shooter or something are you concerned long term about his ability to score efficiently in the playoffs um i'd be more concerned if i think teams were like if he was being groomed to be some type of like primary option but I don't because well, we both of us have talked about that as potential upside. So are you saying you don't see that as his upside anymore? No, primary ball handler versus primary option, I think, are different things. Um, so I don't. You don't see him as potentially a primary option. I yeah, I mean that that scale. Like if you're talking about playoff championship upside type of thing, like how many guys are capable of being a number one scoring option? You know, like there's of I mean of like an actual. He has one on his team. Contending team, right. It's like there's a handful of those guys at any given time in the league. So 
I don't personally see that scoring upside for him. But like, can he be a Kyle Lowry type of guard where it's like, okay, he can't be your guy, and maybe he's not quite your second best scorer, but he can be your best ball handler, and he can get his guys the rock where they need the rock, and he can space the floor, and then he's also going to give you a bunch of value doing all kinds of intangible non-box scorer type things and defend really well and blah, blah. Yeah, like I think that if there's a path to him being like a high minute starter, if there's an archetype of role for him to fill, it is definitely a guy like Kyle Lowry, who I think he actually shares a lot of similarities to. And I think he shares a lot of similarities to somebody like Fred Van Vliet as well, who quite honestly, like quickly demonstrated a lot more ability to be an efficient two-point scorer this past year than Van Vliet ever has. And... I think Fred Van Vliet, like, yeah, I know the number, the raw numbers are fucking hideous for him, um, but he's a solid fucking point guard. You know, he's made an all-star team, and um, obviously he got the bag this summer, but I would imagine that a lot of teams would be interested in him if they had had the cap space to, to go after him. So, like, I think quickly, I, am I worried about him? Like, not really at all. I mean, I'm not really worried about, I'll tell you this, like, maybe this is naive, but as good as RJ was in the playoffs and as bad as quickly and Grimes shot the ball from the floor in the playoffs, I still am like more concerned about the role RJ is going to play long-term than those guys because I just feel like for them, so much of it is just like what you talked about. It's like, are they going to shoot poorly on catch-and-shoot open, relatively open threes for the duration of their career in their playoffs because that's just like they just will never overcome some fear or whatever the hell it is. I I would bet against that. Um, and like with RJ, it's like we're not talking about, oh, he just has to cash in the open threes that we know he can make. It's like we, right now we, it's it's still unanswerable, or at least if it is answerable, it's not a great answer. Is like he's just not been a good shooter, so can he do that? He's not been any type of pull-up shooter so can he do that and and those are the questions that are like are probably more concerning to me than than the ones that we have about quickly and grimes because um not because you can't improve at that but because to be proficient at a level that is in line with like what you need from a starting wing especially one that's getting like third usage or third option usage um he's really just far off in both those areas so um yeah, like <clears throat> to bring it back to quickly, like no, I'm not that concerned about any of that stuff at all, to be honest. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a, that's a valid point. To segue to another thing that's been a, a topic of conversation and does affect quickly. Um, so, with the addition of Dante Divincenzo and of course trading um, Obi out, if if you know if Josh Hart is going to be the forward, that would open up, you know. Aside from you know whatever it gives them from the flexibility of having Hart at the four, as you talked about, um, you know the other thing it gives them is this um, you know it, it opens up more minutes at the two and three for quickly and Grimes, um, and there is going to be a little bit of a log jam. Um, I don't think Divincenzo is like I think if you give him eighteen to twenty minutes, it's not going to cause an issue. Uh, he's not on that kind of contract. Um, but uh, I'm curious, what do you think they're going to do uh, at at power forward. Do you think this? Do you think Hart's the backup forward? Do you think you know maybe Dylan Windler gets a shot? Do you think they're going to have their eyes open and you know try to get someone? 
Um, I think it's going to be the rotation to start the year. Like, I just don't understand why anybody is. I don't even. Th- I don't. This is not even a conversation to me. Like, what they're going to do with the four seems very straightforward. Like, at no point in this offseason have they even been remotely linked with the player that you're like, oh, maybe that's maybe that's what they're going to do with the backup four. Like, oh, it's like oh, Derek Jones Jr. I mean, look, Derek Jones Jr. is he'd be fine as like a flyer addition to the team, but. Derek Jones Jr. is not a guy that you're like, oh, well, now the backup four is fucking, we're solid. We're ready to go. And I just, I don't see it. Like, I think they have their nine guys. And those are going to be their nine guys. And Tibbs is going to have to figure it out. And does that mean if, who's the backup four? Is it Josh Hart? Is it RJ Barrett? Does it, is, does it matter that we have a distinction between those two? I don't really think so. Like, I think what you're going to get is when Randall's off the floor, you're going to have a lot of those two guys at the forward positions. RJ and Hart, and like to me, I mean, does it does? I mean, you've talked about RJ's rebounding or need for improvement. There, does that worry you at all? There, or you know, uh, mm. if one of them has to guard a guy, like let's say there aren't a lot of. I think people have mocked. And I have chuckled at this. It's not like there are a lot of great backup fours, but a guy like Bobby Portis, for example, right? Or just a bigger guy who can get on the glass and, and maybe cause problems, even for guys effective on the glass is hard. You know, does that worry you at all? Do you think they would, you know, even that could cause issues? Um, no. Uh, I mean, look, they, they might have a slight drop-off in terms of, like, defensive rebounding, but Obi wasn't a great defensive rebounder himself. And I think a lot of the success they have as a team defense in terms of their defensive rebounding stems from the fact that both Mitch and Hartenstein, especially as the year went on or Hartenstein's case, um, were really, really effective box out guys. And on top of that, you added Josh Hart, who's a tremendous rebounder for a wing. Uh, Julius Randall, does he get a, a lot of cheap uncontested rebounds because of the box out works of box out work of the centers? Sure. Um, but he's a pretty solid defensive rebounder. Quickly has been a pretty decent defensive rebounder. I think Grimes has more upside as a as a rebounder. Even RJ for like, oh, the shit I give him as a defensive rebounder. I mean, he's still getting you what like five or six boards a game. Like he's not exactly out there doing nothing on that end. Um, right, but I mean, at the four, it's a little bit. I think he might be more engaged at the four than he is at the, like on the on the three at one on the perimeter. You can almost like you're more susceptible to just falling asleep and not boxing well, I mean, guys out. I would I would agree with that, but the Knicks scheme specifically wants to get the the rebounds in the hands of the ball handlers. That's why they have Mitch and Hartenstein focused so diligently on on boxing out, which is a tough thing to ask, by the way, because they're also asked to contest, which we shouldn't take either of those two for granted. But I think that's what's a little bit more damning is that like they want RJ to get the rebound, right? I don't even think he's tasked really with boxing out, and so you probably like him to. I think it was the Heat series was glaring. Yeah, he did not have a great rebounding series against Miami, which I think is probably like, you know, people are like, it was very weird, obviously, to see the on-off stuff with him, where it's like, anecdotally, you're watching the playoffs, and you're like, well, he's playing well. Like, I don't know what, like, it can't be on him. That the, I, there are these things, like, it's like the hidden, you know, the, the numbers that you don't quite fully get when you're just watching when you just watch if you're just like looking at the box score afterwards. But um I think he's like he's susceptible to 
to giving up defensive rebounds. And like, there's that hurts you, right? Because you're getting, giving the opponent extra possessions. Um, I think in that Miami series that, that, that did hurt uh, a bunch. And, and I think, I don't remember. I want to say, I can look it up right now. I feel like he got better as the series went on with his defensive rebounding. Uh, so, I mean, he has, his last game was not good. He only had two defensive rebounds in 32 minutes, but he did have... Just, I, there was something off about him that whole game. I mean, part of it, I think, on defense, they were just sticking Jimmy on him a lot more and living with Vincent on Brunson, but, um, you know, that was just, that last game was weird in general, especially compared to the rest of his playoffs. Yeah, and I mean, look, he only, he had four, he was averaging 4.3 defensive rebounds per game in the in that Miami series, which is over uh, just under 35 minutes a night. Like, that's something that needs to get better. Uh, I think it can get better. That's actually like a pretty, that's an area where it's, so much of that is just like, hey, like, can you lock in a little bit more? Like, everybody falls asleep at times on the defensive glass. This is not like an R.J. Barrett-specific issue. But if you can just be a little bit more concentrated, and we saw Miami, right? Miami is was not a great defensive rebounding team, but they did a pretty admirable job against the Knicks just by being disciplined to the game plan, right? A bunch of guys like Max Cruz and Gabe Vincent, these dudes were not great defensive rebounders, even like Bam, they were able to to contain the Knicks to a certain degree on the glass uh, because of their attention to detail. So I think it's absolutely something that can get better for him. Um, so, like, to go back to the I, – I think at the four, three, four, like, I don't know. You're not – but you're not totally dep- – like, you're, you're kind of banking on, okay, maybe we do give up a little bit in terms of defensive rebounding, but we might be better defensively. We might – now we're going to – the floor may be theoretically more spread because – you're going to have an extra wing on the floor instead of a true like, power forward. And, you know, as much the strides that Obi made as a shooter, I still think that, like, there's something that is left to be desired. Um, and, and certainly defenses were comfortable giving him those threes, uh, not exactly closing out to him at, at speed. So, like, you know, th- if nothing else, I like this move because I think it is putting RJ now in more context where, like, there is no you you can't you can't keep saying that like oh they're not they they need to use him at the four some they're just putting him in more context now and maybe maybe they're forcing this um to like to really get a better idea of what he can do overall as a player and um in a lot of ways they're also forcing Tibbs to just do things that he's not going to do naturally. So uh, I'm not that worried about that part of it. I, I'd be more worried if, like, and the thing is we also added DiVincenzo as a good guard rebounder. Um, like, I'd be more concerned if that, if, like, if we had replaced DiVincenzo, or sorry, if we had just, if let's say we had added, like, a Malik Monk instead of DiVincenzo, where it's like, okay, yeah, the offense is a mini dynamite, but uh, this guy doesn't really address the thing in terms of defensive rebounding that you maybe lose a bit um, by going smaller. So, like, I think RJ can get better, and I, I just think that the drop-off in terms of defensive rebounding from, what, like, DiVincenzo? Or, sorry, from Obi to, like, DiVincenzo is not that significant at all. Yeah, and it's worth noting, um, so shout-out Ariel Pacheco for posting this, but in 94 minutes with Hart on the floor and Randall and Toppin off, so functionally he's the four, 
Knicks had a plus 4.09 rating. Uh, RJ actually had 152 minutes in lineups without Randall and Toppin. There's a plus 4.51 rating. So uh, they have it has worked. Uh, you know, there is going to be some selection bias there with the fact that Tip's probably selective about when he would use these lineups. So we'll see if it works against, you know, the Bobby Portis of the world or whatever. But, um, but there's certainly and, – and, you know, we haven't talked that much about what it can do for them on offense, right? Hart is a pretty effective uh, dribble drive threat. Um, he is because of the lack of shooting, it's not as effective maybe against twos or threes, but if he's playing slower fours, um, he should be able to get a step on them and get into the paint where he's, he's proven to be pretty adept. I'd like him to have a counter to his like rip through move and transition, but you know, that's another story. Um, so I think that, you know, it definitely makes a lot of sense. If they did get a guy like Trenton Watford or, or someone who could play the four, uh, and maybe it was even a better option at the four than RJ or, or Hart, would you worry about Quickly's minutes or Grimes' minutes or, or that causing a bit of a, a problem? And do you think that's factoring into you know, some of these decisions? Um, could you... Do, I, do you think... Do you... Like, do, do you do you think that it would be an issue? Like if they let's say let's say that they haven't been able to find a four and they're fine with Hart, but let's say they found a backup four. You know, let's say PJ Washington was available for cheap or something. I would imagine it would infringe on quickly and Grimes' minutes. Do you think that issue or that potential issue a is as big of an issue as, as maybe I'm saying it is, but also b. Do you think that ish, potential issue is why maybe they haven't tried as hard to get a four and are trying? And the heart at the four thing is not only they like that, but also opens up more minutes for uh, some of these younger guards. Yeah, I mean, you got to know who your coach is. Um, like they they had this issue again, like the last three years, effectively, the start of each season, they've had issues with like, and not even, I mean, not just at the beginning of seasons, sometimes for entire seasons, they've had some issues with the minutes stuff. I think as a rookie, they probably didn't care that like quickly was probably playing less than he should. Cause it's still like, Hey, look, you were picking the 25th overall. We're playing well as a team, well above what anybody expected. Like this is all gravy. Like the fact that you're playing as much as you are just that we're, we're good with this. I don't think they cared about that. Uh, I think what happened during the 2021, 22 season. And then at the start of last year, definitely, it definitely feels like that influenced their choices both during the season last year when they made the rotation change um, and what they've chosen to do this off season. And, and not just like, you know, quickly and Grimes and RJ to a degree, like I, I don't know. I wouldn't say like they're safe, like their minutes are never going to go anywhere and there's no risk of them losing minutes. I don't think that's true, but I think they're a lot more secure. They're, they're like, they're in the nine guys, man, the nine man rotation, right? They're in that mix. I think it might even be something like, Hey, look, like if we bring in a power forward one, we're never going to get a look at these different groupings that we would maybe like to see and explore and, and get data on. And also it could be as simple as like, Hey, like we actually like deuce. So if we're going to have a 10th guy that's situational. We'd rather have it be a guy who's making, peanuts this off this next year um and who we do have to make a decision on contractually fairly soon i mean he's 
a he could he could be a free agent at the end of next season. So um, I I think that might be a part of it as well, and I, I think that's probably a little bit under discussed because even last year at the deadline, I think it was reported that like the Knicks. I mean, I, I know this is it's it, it was worded this way, which made it kind of funny. Uh, but it was like the Knicks are not entertaining any trades for Deuce McBride or something, which obviously is not true. Like, I'm sure if somebody called them up and was like, yeah, we will give you a lottery pick for Deuce McBride, they'd probably do that. Um, but I do think it speaks to the point of like, hey, like we actually like what we've seen from him and we know the shot hasn't come around yet in the NBA. Um, but if it does, if if that happens, we really like what we have in this player and we would because we like that, we want to continue to um, at least have him in the mix where if somebody goes down, he can step into the rotation. And so, like, um, I think that that's probably informed some of their thinking as well. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point about Deuce. Um, I do think we should read some of these comments. Um, so we got Ace, Ace Bouchard. Um, well, let's start with Chris Bernhard, I don't know if I've ever been so bored by an NBA offseason like I have with this one. No dumb Dame news like the Donnie stuff last year. Nothing with Harden and Bede. Just sim to September. Do you think this is an unusually boring offseason? I think... Is it? Like, I don't really... I don't know. Like, I Was last season some, like... I think last season was, was a pretty boring offseason. It just felt for us it yeah was different because yeah it just felt not Mitchell. boring for us because we had the donovan mitchell thing but i guess if you i'm sure if you talk to like heat fans they'd be like this offseason's been crazy like oh fucking the dame thing is wild and if you talk to portland fans i'm sure they'll say the same thing like i don't think it's been and I, I mean from the way um i mean even from the way chris has said this comment it almost sounds like he's talking about more NBA specific than, or not sorry, more Nick specific than NBA specific. You know, with the no da dumb Dame news like the Donnie stuff last year, nothing with Harden and Embiid, which seems like it's more about us. Um, I, I don't think so. I think this. I think people, NBA reporters have this habit of like making every offseason seem like it's going to be the most monumental thing that's ever happened. And it just never is. And why would they I, do that? Yeah, why would they do that? And then I think fans, like myself, and all like I mean, a lot of people, we we expect because these people who are plugged in are saying these things that it's going to happen, and it just never does. Like we see NBA reporters, they're wrong all the fucking time. You know, like I mean, look at if you look at some of the Dame reporting prior to the draft. Like I, 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 I need to go back and find this clip. But there was like a clip of, like, I want to say, who's the, the Draft Express guy that's still at ESPN? Is that Jiveny? Or yeah, Jiveny? Jiveny. Yeah. I think he was on a pod, and he was like talking about, like, oh, no, like, Dame, look, he's one of these fucking guys in the NBA who just, you know, he goes into the facility, and he's, like, locked into the CBA, and he understands the value of the third pick, and that, you know, Scoot, like, if they draft Scoot, he could be more valuable than what they would trade Scoot for, and he's in, he's okay with that. He understands what the front office is doing, and I'm just like, a week later, you're like, so you're full of shit, because your buddy works <laughs> for, like, the Blazers front office, and you're doing them a solid? Like, give me a break. I think, the, like, they... A lot, I, I hate doing this, but it's like a lot of these guys, one, they're carrying water for their various sources. Two, it is in their interest to be like, 
this season, this off season is gonna be crazy. Make sure you stay tuned in to fucking uh, the NBA inside the NBA or whatever the fuck. Like locked on Knicks. Yeah, fuck you, Alex, you bum. Um, no, but like, it's it's just it's what it is. So I don't personally think it's been that boring. I think it's actually just you know a lot of shit happened initially. If you think about it, the draft was kind of boring, especially after like. I thought the draft might be actually pretty crazy, but the draft was pretty boring. And I thought the offseason was fine, though. I mean, we got a we got a Chris we got Chris Paul traded to the Warriors. Think about that. Like that happened. Bradley Beal got traded to the Suns. Well, I who, mean, so how how the closest comparable I can think of, the closest comparable I can think of to that Chris Paul trade is that um, that Kyle Lowry trade to Miami. Do you think this is a bigger deal, less of a big deal? It's not. It's probably less of a big deal because Chris Paul is not as good as Kyle Lowry was at that point. But it's a bigger deal because it's Chris Paul, who's a bigger star than Kyle Lowry, and he's going to the Warriors, who have the point guard who took. He he he. Wait, they traded Steph. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, they took. They took like Steph took the crown from Chris Paul is the best point guard in the league. And obviously Chris Paul and Draymond have had their own beefs and whatever. Like it's just a, it's a fun story. I think it's a fun story. I think, um, you know, like there are annoying, stupid superstar trade rumors out there, be it with Embiid or Harden or Dame, who's obviously very actively seeking a trade. And so is Harden for that matter. Uh, there was stuff with Paul George and you know, like there is stuff that's out there and, and it, like I, I I don't know. Like I, I guess maybe I don't. Maybe I'm just enjoying the boringness of the off season so much because I think last off season was a terrible fucking experience for me, and I am a lot happier this off season just not having to talk about various iterations of the Donovan Mitchell. You know, how could we get Donovan Mitchell without? Totally fucking over our pick future. And no, is passing on Jalen uh, Duran going to be the same thing as the uh, the Blazers <laughs> passing on Michael Jordan? No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is also good with the Rudy the Rudy Gobert trade. I'm sure the Rudy Gobert trade kind of made last offseason unnecessarily entertaining. Um, like, especially I, for I, me, he made a viral meme out of it. Yeah, no, I I do think that like, yeah, we haven't had that one or two big super splash moves, but those could still be coming. You know, like the Dame trade. I think especially now with the NBA ruling, I mean, we should probably talk about that is like they effectively ruled, right. That like, you can't be just telling teams, like I'm not going to show up to work if you trade for me. Um, and I think I, I, I'd be, I don't want to say I'd be surprised. I think we will get a Dame trade. I feel like there will be a team that emerges and will pull the trigger on it. That isn't Miami. And that can offer them closer to what they want. Um, I do wonder if that's New Orleans, interestingly enough, which would be an interesting fit. But um, I think we'll get a Dame trade. What about I, Boston? I, look, they, I mean, they just signed Jalen Brown, but maybe that, that's a good thing, right? Well, they can't trade Jalen Brown now for a year. Um, but, I mean, I, I would have done that trade. I would have traded him for fucking Dame in a second. But, um, yeah, th- th- there's always... I mean, look, today we got huge news that Masai Ujiri pulling another masterstroke signed Garrett Temple to a contract. So we're still getting fireworks here <laughs> in late July. Um, 
Yeah, no, I, I he's gonna I he's gonna take out your heart. And, oh, is it? He's gonna eat your brain like, uh, like the <laughs> temple of doom. Uh, no, no. Well, he eats monkey brains, but then he also rips your heart out in that too. Uh, but like, yeah, I mean, there's also lesser name stuff like oh Siakam. Like, I mean, who cares about Pascal Siakam unless you're a Raptors fan? But there's those things. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's been a slower off season. I mean, it definitely was slower than last year, but I just I don't know. I'm not that surprised by it. Like, I just kind of feel like this is the nature of these things. And I also think teams are working out, like, coming to groups with the new CBA. And we can sit and, like, analyze the impact of, like, okay, well, now, if you're at this apron, you can only do this thing, and you can only aggregate salary this way, you know? Yeah, but, like, when you're a team having to make those decisions in real time without seeing how the restrictions work in actual practice, um, it's hard. What what does he say in Oppenheimer? Uh, theory can only take you so far. So like, I think you need like teams actually have to like beat. Like, I don't uh, think it comes across looking yeah. that great there. Uh, uh, near no. zero, near zero. <laughs> it's near zero. It's it's basically the same thing. The new CBA and uh, testing a nuclear device. Um, but like, I think that if uh, you know, I would expect this would be my guess. Expect there to be more activity at the trade deadline and next summer um, than than there is now. Because I think this new CBA threw a lot of... It, yeah, I, well, yeah, I just think teams weren't necessarily or didn't fully understand what the ramifications of what was coming down the pipeline. And um, you also have teams that are like in cap situations, locked into contracts and all pick encumbered that need that are more restricted now because of these rules. And so even if they want to make moves, they need to extricate themselves from positions where now those moves would be available to them. Yeah. Um, I think that, and there's so much of this is, you know, I, I think that we've lived in an age where super, we talked about this, but super teams have been kind of the standard. And now, unless you really have a couple of those top guys, like that's people are like, you know, is the C- is the CBA going to accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish? You know, is it going to help stop player movement or all of these things? I think that what it will accomplish is, um, I think the Superman or sorry, the super team construct being the, you know, the most efficient way, or at least understood that way um, is going to change. And I think you might see that, you know, in this age, maybe kind of spreading out your chips a little bit more is going to work better for NBA teams. Uh, and that's why, you know, I think that the, the, a lot of the aversion to the Josh Hart move, and I don't think this is unfounded, because if you look at the mid-2000s, look about how many, you know, you, that was that one summer, I think, the Knicks actually made a good deal. They got uh, Robin Lopez for 4 for 54. I really liked that deal, and then for some reason they traded it from Rose. But that same summer, you know, you had guys like, was the same summer or was the year afterwards when they gave Noah, which doesn't think that looks... The Knicks look at as good, but uh, you know you had Mozgov getting four for sixty-five, right? You had a, a lot of a lot of people just getting money thrown at them, and I think the reaction for us is if the player is mid and he's getting what looks like a lot of money, it's a bad deal, right? You're, I think that the ideal concert for most people would probably be rookies and, and min vets combined with a couple of superstars, and that made a lot of sense, like you know, especially if you follow the analytics of it, you know, the people. Like the top guys, like a LeBron or like a Dame or 
Steph obviously are going to outperform max contracts. Uh, that's why the max is put in place so that you know other guys so you can level the playing field a little bit. Um, so the only guys that outperform are really those max guys, but really the guys who are worth the max, and then at the bottom, rookies really right. And then you you sprinkle in a few vets who can fill their roles. And I think you now might see it evolve to a more egalitarian structure. I'm curious if you think that's a thing with this new CBA, and I think you have a much better understanding of it than me. So, um, yeah, I do think so. Like I think I, I've seen a lot of people be like, "Well, this is going to kill the middle class." And I just don't think that's true. I think it'll have the opposite effect. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you need to- like again, it you, you can say it killed the middle class this summer, um, which I, I think is. I mean, with Brooks, I, I, Isaiah Stewart. Yeah, Hard but I think, I think, yeah, but then you look at some of the guys that signed, like you know, like the Suns got all these dudes on minimums, and like I think that got really gassed up out of like, I don't know. There's some weird fucking media push with the Suns where it's like, oh, like they had such a great off season. I'm like, okay, look, like Eric Gordon on a minimum is pretty nice, but like Eric Gordon's also 75 years old. Like, can we fucking relax on like, like how good of a move this is? Or, like, oh my god, they didn't bring back Jock Landale. They went out and got like. Kata Bates Diop, and it's like, give me a fucking break, dude. Kata Bates Diop has not, he hasn't played a meaningful minute. Oh, uh, Eric Gordon's less than a year older than me. Fuck yeah. you, sure. I, I I don't appreciate that. I'm not yeah. 74 years old. Yes, you are. We both are. <laughs> Kata Bates Diop is like he hasn't played a meaningful minute since he graduated from the dumbest university in the entire country, Ohio State. Um, like, like these guys. Okay, like give me a, like again. You, were these guys minimum players? Probably not if there was more money available on the market, but there wasn't. So um, it is what it is. And like I think in the years, like as we go on, one, the cap is jumping 10% pretty steadily from everything that's been reported. The other part, too, is now that teams are aware of what the CBA is. They will adjust their plans and how they want to manage their cap situations and, and the type of trades they will make uh, accordingly. And I expect that over the next two or three years, what you will see is, yes, there, will there still be teams that are in a situation like the Suns, where it's, yeah, you've got your three guys and you're paying a shit ton of money, and then you get to you know, round out the roster with, like, you know, a exception here or there, but mostly veteran minimum guys. I think Boston is an example of a team who's trying to figure out, like, okay, um, like, I personally don't think they had a great offseason. I understand what that why they did what they did, but I, I just don't I actually if KP's okay, I love that for them. I'll yeah, I, I just I don't think a team that sucked at passing and ball handling did anything to address that situation. And I don't care that I, I think they were already had the best base in the league. I already argued about this with Prez on Friday. Like they already had the best base in the league. I think they're diminishing returns as good as KP is relative to like Al Horford at the five. I just don't think Al Horford is also, by the way, we should say a ticking time bomb. Like you yeah. don't know how many of course, you're going to get out. Every Absolutely. year could be that. Absolutely. So, I don't I think getting Porzingis is a good trade in isolation. Like I I don't especially the price they paid. I just don't think that their roster is actually necessarily better than it was last year. Um but I think you know they did good work in terms of like they accumulated more draft capital moving forward. They got an extra first. Um they got that Golden State first next year. They have a bunch of second round picks they've amassed. Like they didn't bring back Grant Williams because that would have put them further into the second apron. And like, I think they're working through some things, but they have a lot of assets. They have all their own picks. They have a bunch of these seconds again. They have an extra first again. Um, like, what, what can they turn that into? What exactly are their 
you know, what can they do with these things? I, I think that's something that like they might kind of be in an in-between step because they're working out like, well, you know, how, how we, we want to give ourselves flexibility, but we want to try and get better. And I think they're trying to walk that path right now. And then like, you know, I think you see a team like Washington that was just like, okay, like we can either give Kyle Kuzma and Kristaps big new contracts, bring them back. And then, you know, we'll still be stuck or Mark our wizardry. Yeah. <laughs> or do what we're doing and just kind of really nuke this thing and, and try to start from scratch. Like uh, there's, there's just a lot of stuff where it looks like teams are adjusting course and kind of figuring out how to recalibrate under this new CBA. So um, I personally think that there's a world where like, like the Knicks are an example of this where, yeah, I mean, we can sit here and talk about like, oh, like, well, they're going to have to pay Jalen Brunson in two years. They're going to have to pay Randall in two years, whatever. Um, even if those guys get maxed, like their maxes are not going to be in the ballpark of somebody like Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum or any of these supermax eligible guys. If for no other reason that they are not supermax eligible, like Jalen Brunson is not eligible for a supermax. Jalen or Julius Randall will not be eligible for a supermax. It's just a, a fact. So. Um, what would Randall have to do if he makes he NBA next year? It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter because they were not drafted by the Knicks okay. and they didn't get traded to the Knicks while still on their rookie contracts. So, like, they're just not going to be eligible for it. And I, like... So I what love, is Randall's max deal? Uh, I would have to look, but he should probably be eligible for the 30% max in two years, I believe. Um, so that would be... He might even, yeah, he might even be eligible for the thirty-five percent max. When did he come to the NBA? Two thousand fifteen. Okay, so he would be. I think that's he has ten years of service, so he'd be eligible for the thirty-five percent max. I doubt he would get a full thirty-five percent max contract. I just can't see that occurring. Two thousand fourteen. Yeah, can't. Yeah, I can't see that happening. Um, Jalen Brunson would only be eligible for the thirty percent max. I'm pretty sure. So, like, even in this scenario, they're not necessarily going to be in the situation where like oh these two guys are commanding like you know so much money that all we can do is veteran minimums and all this type of stuff um i think they're in a position where like look they have the they they might we just talked about two guys at the start of the spot josh hart and Emmanuel quickly who could be making you know something like 17 18 20 million dollars whatever it is in that kind of in-between range and i think there'll be teams that will be like, hey, look, we have our one guy, so we can either try to go get a second guy, or we can just try to round out this roster with as much talent as possible. Um, and, and, and do you think that's a new thing with the CBA? Because I remember there was a, a couple years ago, um, you did a pod with Spreads, yeah, sorry. Very random throwback, but this was um, kind of the height of the... This is part one, I think, of the Nick should trade for Zach Levine discussions. Um <laughs> But I think both of you had mentioned you were talking about Fred Van Fleet potentially paying him something like twenty million. This was the summer he got the four for eighty five. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this was Leon Rose's first summer. Um, so the Knicks, I the think, summer of COVID, summer of COVID, the summer where they had apparently offered Gordon Hayward, you know, bring me back four for eighty, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take me back to COVID. <laughs> um, a lot of a lot of alone time. Um, he, you know, the, the point is that, like, I think Prez made the point, or maybe it was you, that, like, 
you know, look at a guy like Ricky Rubio. He was signed for, I think, $17 million a year back then, which was looked as an overpay, but especially having Booker and what he's able to do for the team. You know, these kind of guys, it's not like there aren't guys who can who can live up to that value in the mid-range. I think that or in the middle range or, you know, those those kind of areas, you can get value there. You just have to have, I think, the right role for them. Um, but I think that is, um, you know, that is, I think, an interesting thing because I think most most NBA fans would say you get a star and then you figure it out afterwards, right? I, I think the idea of building around the middle class, for lack of a better term, um, you know, seems like you're just going to end up overpaying. And, um, you know, I think that I wonder, A, is it, a pro- is it changing because of the cap or is this maybe just an area of arbitrage that's been around because these players get undervalued for quite some time? Or they get, they get undervalued relative to the value they can provide in a specific situation um yeah i just my my thinking going back even like a couple years i actually said this um was that i just thought because of how cost prohibitive all these superstar trades were that like it was going to lead to teams like a freeze kind of on the market because there just be not as many teams one probably willing to pay those prices two the teams that are willing to pay those prices would have already paid him so that they, they can't do anything for a few years. Um, and then the third was just like, I mean, I, I maybe I, I don't even know if I realized this at the time, but like part of it is because guys, the extension rules are so favorable to teams and I guess players now too, like you're just more inclined to like extend with your team. And then if, even if you want to get traded, you're like I'll figure it out later. It's not a big deal. Um, so my feeling was just like you were going to see a lot of teams that stayed together for longer than we had been seeing over the past the previous decade, where it was like, oh my god, player movement all the fucking time. Uh, and there's still plenty of player movement. There's certainly more player movement now than there was like you know in the early 2000s and stuff like that. But um, I think we're moving away a little bit from it being such a transactions heavy league, which is probably why some people are like this offseason is boring. Um, but like. I mean, look at the Knicks, right? Like, the Knicks have, they've basically changed, like, they changed one rotation player. That was it. That was their offseason. Like, they did not do a whole lot. Um, again, there's, they're not, they're, they're not necessarily the only team. I mean, there are teams that have had plenty of kind of change, right? But even a team like the Lakers, right? They didn't bring back, like, they brought back most of their team, and then they added, like, Gabe Vincent and, Jackson Hayes and I don't know. I heard they reached out to Melisandre to (laughs) restore LeBron's youth for 20 years. Um, But yeah, like, so I I think even like team like the Clippers, right? They haven't really done anything. A lot of teams haven't done much. Houston, I I guess, right? Yeah, but Houston was capped. Yeah, but Houston Houston had cap space. So that was like a little bit different. But they didn't make like, they kept their core guys, the guys they want to they want to keep, right? Like, okay, sure, they dumped Ty Ty Washington and Usman Garuba, but, like, I wouldn't say those guys were exactly key components to their rebuild, right? Like, they, most of the... I, it just seems like most teams in the NBA are just in a position where it's like, hey, look, the, the new CBA is what it is, which is a lot more drastic in, in the penalties that you're facing if you do certain things. Um, and then on top of that, like... The draft and development, I think, has become more important 
because again, like forgetting even the new CBA in the past CBA, by the end of it, you every trade for a star was like, well, you have to give us give us all your picks, and so it's like, okay, well, if you weren't willing to pay those prices, then drafting well and developing well becomes paramount. I mean, it's 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 more important than anything, arguably. So like, it felt like teams were getting better at. I don't want to say better at like drafting, developing, but more invested in it. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways, that's, I mean, that's it, a very broad answer, but like, I'm not totally shocked that the league is, has become a little less transaction heavy. And I do feel like there are, I think it's more viable to win a championship probably now without like, multiple superstars than it has been in forever. Like, I, I really do. Like, that's not to say you don't need a superstar, but the days of, like, well, if you don't get three superstars, what are you even doing? Um, I think those days are over. And I, I think, personally, that they probably should have been over much sooner because, I mean, I, I talked about this in real time. Like, I, I did not... I thought the Harden trade for Brooklyn was stupid. I wouldn't have done it. Um, and there are a lot of people who are like, well, you got to do it. And I'm like, well, yeah, maybe if not, if all three of them weren't like fucking unreliable narrators, sure. But they are on; they are all unreliable narrators. Um, I, I don't think you could do that trade. So, and and I, I mean, look at all these. We've talked about this many times, but all these all-in trades, like the logic was like, well, you got to do it, you got to do it, you got to do it. And it's like, okay, well, how many of them are happy that they with these trades they've made? How many are like, any of us really happy? True. Um, I I'm not. But how like, many have actually? That's a good point. Um, like, do you like we can just do this? Like, do you think the Clippers are happy with their ROI? I I think hindsight. That's a tough one because hindsight. If you right, but I'm not, I'm not. I'm not saying. Shea I'm not saying like. Alexander, I'm I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying like. It would be different if Shakeelis Alexander yeah. was just a solid player instead of what he's become. So, but no, I don't think. Yeah. Okay. Do Do we think the Nets were happy with their ROI? No, we are resulting there. I still think you do it anytime because yeah. they're the Nets. They fucking suck. Do are are the Sixers happy with their ROI on Harden? I mean, they haven't. They, I, I would say like none of TBD. their moves. None TBD. of their moves individually were all in, but they ultimately ended up in a position where they are all in, and it's like they're stuck. T- TBD. I mean, they really fucked up with the Butler thing. That yeah. was the big thing. Like, not trading for him, but... No, the trade for him was fucking brilliant. Like, they uh-huh. didn't give up anything to get him. Uh, it was, like, literally Robert Covington, Sarich, Jared Bayless, and, like, two seconds or something. Good job, GM Tibbs. Um, do you think that the Timberwolves are happy with their trade? For Grudy? Oh. <laughs> do you think... This, okay, this is actually the most interesting one because somebody brought this up um, about Phoenix, right, being here. But do you, it, do you think Phoenix is happy with their with the results so far? And then more importantly, do if you had to bet, will Phoenix win a championship? Um, like, I, I would bet no. I mean, which is you should actually bet no on any individual team to win a championship. That's usually the better play, but. I would be. Where would you rank them though in the NBA? There's only one team I'm putting head and shoulders above them, and that's really I think Phoenix is a big team. Yeah, but like Denver is better than them. I think 
I don't think Boston's better than them. I, don't think I think the Lakers are better than them. I think the Celtics are better than them. I but think. LeBron is is falling apart. But yeah, but he's apart, yeah. but he is aging. Rapidly. He's aging, and I still think like they were. Once they made those trades at the deadline, they were pretty clearly the second best team in the West. Um, you thought I, they were, I did not think they were better than Phoenix, and now Phoenix. I, I'm higher than on Beal, I guess that's part of it. Yeah, and, I. I yeah. Beal, Beal a point, I'm fucking out on that. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. Like Booker's going to run the offense. Like, I, yeah, I, I don't like that either. Like I, I like Booker running points sometimes. I don't like Booker being, hey, go be fucking Michael Jordan. Like, no, not a huge fan of that plan. Um, I like, I probably am weird. I think I like Golden State more, but I think I'm just like very high on the vibes b- being good and that will make them better. And I think Steph is still fucking amazing. Um, I can't. Sorry, dude. Jeremiah is just too much. I can't bet on the vibes. Yeah, historically they never work. I can't bet on vibes for it. Yeah, I think the vibes will be fine. Like cantankerous aging. Like Draymond Green is basically Junior Soprano at this point. <laughs> so I don't know. I I think. And every day, every week, the talent less and less. They, sorry, I know you hate Jordan Poole. Jamon Green cost them a pretty damn good player. And that might be unfair to put all the blame on him, but you're supposed to be the, the bigger person. I, I, I mean, I, I agree with that. I don't yeah. think he's been. Like, he, he is a very, they know how to handle him. It's a little bit like, this is a player he's drawn a lot of parallels to in his career, but it is a little, like if you watch The Last Dance, like Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan were the perfect people to handle Rodman, right? Like Rodman just said, I need to go to Vegas in the middle of the season. How many coaches would put up with that I, and could I handle mean, that? I need somebody to clip um, just Stacy saying Michael or yeah Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan were the perfect people. Just just that. Or, or, or. <laughs> no 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 don't, don't ignore the rest of the sentence. Um, yeah, I mean like that's fair. I, I just I just I, I, I do want to add. I'm always out on these really teams cool. that are like three guys and bunch of. Yeah, no, I, I get that, um, but I think Phoenix is very much a TBD. Yeah. Um, just on my last note, I did want to add. I just found out today that um, Dennis Rodman's daughter is like uh, one of the stars of the U.S. Women's yeah. National Soccer Team, which is pretty cool. Um, I saw like a cool piece about her in ESPN. So uh, fun tangent, but uh, but always great to see it. Uh, yeah, you can see where, uh, where she gets her athletic gifts from. Um, yeah, she's actually really fucking good. Uh, Sorry, Ariel. Ohio State sucks. Not your fault. Um, uh, <laughs> I'll so second I, that. This this was uh, today. We're going to be peaceful. They just throw a quarterback. Yeah, fuck that shit. Uh, this this is an interesting comment. I actually, I actually thought about this. I don't know. Uh, Macri loves to remind everyone that Randall has been all NBA two times in the last four years. Where do you think he ranks in the other two years? That's from Lo- Loki Whitaker. Hopefully, I pronounced that right. Um, I have no idea. I actually think I will say I think his first year in New York is a little bit underrated. Not to say it was like it's some amazing season. He was a lot better under Miller. Yeah, he was a lot better under Miller. The entire team sucked ass under Fisdale to the point where like it was like, look, man, um Randall's probably just getting scapegoated here because he was like our big ticket item in free agency. Uh, but he was a lot better under Miller. You even had like, I mean, he had some games where you could kind of see 
the glimpses of the type of stuff that we saw more of the following season. I think he had a game against the Nets where he absolutely lit them up for like 39 points or something. Um, but like, I don't, I, I don't know. His first year in New York, what I would, I would say that was about an average season. Like he's probably, he was about a solid starter. And while I still wanted to trade him after that season, uh, I didn't think that like they should, like they, I didn't think they needed to attach stuff to dump him or anything like that, and I wouldn't have done it. So, uh, I would say he was about a solid starter after his first season. I don't know where that ranks him in the NBA. What is that like? Top fifty, uh, like top seventy-five, right? It's like half the league. You did, if you go a top, you divide it by a third, right? So, well, I'm saying like seventy-five players start, or seventy-five. Like, there's 150 starters in the league. Yeah. So, solid starter, I think, is something like. So an average starter is 75. Yeah, That's right. something like that. Uh, I mean, the year he had in 2021-22 was honestly but abysmal. The, oh, yeah. That, that was, it was awful. Like, and I, I think you could argue, was he one of the worst players in the NBA? I think it's always weird to talk about this. Like, was he actually one of the worst players in the NBA? Probably not. But was but he when you think about his context most destructive? His or, yeah. Yeah. It was, is, was he... Was he Actually, one of the most destructive players in the league to his team. Yeah, like he might have been the most. I think it's fair to argue that um, he was god awful. So, like, I think, and I, I agree. I agree with John. Like, you do have to respect the fact that he's been all NBA twice. Like, whatever you want to say about the playoff stuff, which is more than fair to criticize him for. Um, the fact that he's done, he's had two seasons that are worthy of selection to be effectively picked as like one of the top 15 players in the league means something. Um, it means a lot, quite honestly, but yeah, it's been mixed in with these two seasons where it's like the first season, I'm just like, okay, whatever. He's kind of solid. It's fine. The second one, I, I have no, that, that was one of the most destructive individual seasons I've seen in fucking the second forever. bad year. So it's third year. Yeah. Yeah. It's third year. Um, that was atrocious. Yeah. I mean, I think, what does encourage me long term? Um, so there's this Jekyll and Hyde thing. I think it's very clear that, like, he, his first three years, really, he was the number one option for better force. Um, his role wasn't really that different in his second year. Um, I think he's talked about how, you know, having Reggie Bullock there and knowing where guys were helped a lot as opposed to kind of whatever they were doing under Fisdale, I think more structure helped him. When, like, I think he is a guy who plays well in structure and knowing where his reads are. When he has to improvise, when he kind of has to read and react and those kind of things, that's where he struggles. It's a pretty... And the sad thing is there isn't really a way to get around that in the playoffs. But I think what was most encouraging and why I don't... And this is not exactly the question. So my, my, my answer would be, how do you rank him? He's somewhere in the 25 to 30 range. I think we've seen players in the past who are really good regular season performers who struggle in the playoffs. You know, Randall to me is about as high as peak DeRozan. Is that fair to say? Like Raptors DeRozan? Yeah. Um, I am a little more optimistic because um, I think his second year, the, the you know, the COVID year when he was really good, he was so dependent on just outlier shot making, right? He did not have a good shot profile. Um, I don't think his space creation got that much better beyond just what he's already able to do with his physical gifts. Um, his defense, he was a little bit more locked in, but to be honest, even at that point, 
beyond the games where they use them as a switcher, and you could see, like, ironically, that Hawks series, like, his best defensive probably stretch of his career was that Hawks series where he couldn't do anything right. Uh, you know, he was pretty effective switching on to Trey Young. Um, I think what gives me more confidence about last year, even with this playoff fiasco, is, um, you know, he, his shot profile was a lot different. He only shot 34% from three. It's not like he shot the ball that well. His mid-range was 43%, which is about the same it was in, in 2020, but it was on much lower volume. It seems pretty sustainable. Um, and, you know, I think that for as much flack as we give him for, you know, kind of his ball nominant style, I, th- I think he's actually been pretty good at playing off, off of others. Um, when it comes to Randall, I want to ask you about this. So I think both of both you and me and a lot of people, um, Jeff Rasmussen has talked a lot about this and or had talked a lot about it at the time. You know, the first couple of games, you know, the Cleveland series, the Knicks staggered Randall. Um, and, you know, part of that was Brunson got into foul trouble very quickly, uh, and so the, he didn't have a choice, but he stag- staggered Randall and Brunson, and I actually really like the idea of Randall being the guy to babysit bench units. I just don't love Randall or RJ in that role right now. I don't like. I think more than going against bench units, I think RJ has really served well when he can go against smaller defenders. I think his best opportunity to do that is when he plays with Brunson, and he can either get switches on those screens or, you know, other teams will throw their best wing on Brunson and, and open up the opportunity for, you know, they try to hide a guard on, on RJ. And the biggest thing he proved was like, you know, we had um, Jordan Cohen on here before the Cavs series. And, and, and I talked to other bloggers for the Cavs who were like, yeah, we'll live with Garland on RJ. We don't like make RJ beat us. And he beat them because you can't put us like, that's one thing we figured out is like, whatever his flaws are, he's going to beat up on small guards. I don't know if you get those opportunities with the bench unit, but, the, the lineup I'm most excited to see is quickly, I'm not to say, I mean, what, so in terms of babysitting the bench, right, or having a starter play with the bench if you have a nine-man rotation, uh, Brunson doesn't need to do that um, just because that guy's going to score no matter what. Um, he, the starters without him, I do worry about the offense, the starters, with, but like any lineup with him is going to score. That's not an issue. RJ, Especially last year, I don't like. I think he has good chemistry with quickly, but you know, I, I just think as long as you get him away from Randall, he's going to be better. But I actually like him with Brunson a lot. Um, but it's really Randall who I think that struggles sometimes against the lead defenders. But get him against bench bigs and get him in space. And the Knicks are weirdly enough a team with better defenders off the bench than in the starting lineup. If you put Randall next to quickly, um, Divincenzo. I would play Grimes with this lineup. He's technically a starter as well, but I would play him with him. Uh, Randall, and then I would go with Mitch just because the perimeter defenders are really good, but they're a little small. So if for whatever reason you are giving some dribble penetration, I would prefer Mitch in this lineup to Hardenstein, but a lot of people would prefer Hardenstein for kind of the ball movement. What you have is like you have four good to great defenders against around Randall. You have three really good shooters. Everyone is a good passer um, besides Randall, uh, and everyone pushes the pace. And you know, between Mitch's hands and ability to force turnovers and blocks and the other three and their ability to force turnovers, you're also going to get into a transition a lot. I, I Do you think there's a chance that Tibbs does do that, makes Randall the bench guy, brings him out at the six-minute mark, then brings him back at the beginning of the first quarter, the second quarter? Then how much do you think that would improve his effectiveness? Uh, I would be 
surprised because he just hasn't done it for three years. Um, he hasn't had the like, options he's had, but yeah. He hasn't had the options, but he's, I mean, I think even going back to his time in Chicago and, and Minnesota as a coach, he's had these tendencies to keep his groupings pretty rigid. Um, and for that reason, I'd be surprised, but to his credit, I mean, he did go with a lineup last year that I think all of us were pleasantly surprised by, um, or at least, no, no, I shouldn't say all. Most people were pleasantly surprised by, um, even if it came at the expense of Cam Reddish, who, congrats on signing. Oh, I forgot the Lakers added him on a minimum. So they Next definitely, Paul George. yeah, they won the off season. Um, so I think like that, that's evidence of something, I guess. Like, and if he, if he is willing, or if he's at least open to playing RJ and Josh Hart, you know, kind of as his backup fours, it does speak to at least some willingness to be less rigid in about stuff that he traditionally hasn't, uh, or they traditionally has been very, very um, strict on. So, like, yeah, maybe, but I don't. I just don't see it because, like, the the thing you agree that lineup fucking fire right yeah and it, it would be and i actually like i'm actually i was disappointed as that cleveland series went on because not because obviously i mean obviously as the series went on we kept kicking their ass more i was very very happy but i was disappointed in the sense of i thought that in that first game when he pulled randall from the the rotation early and then brought him back in you know like i, I thought that was a tactical adjustment that they had made that they were like oh like let's steal some minutes here and then we could bring randall back in and yeah like i i I thought that was smart and so to see that like as randall got his conditioning back or whatever that the rotations just resembled more and more of what we expected um, and what we were accustomed to was a little disappointing and it's also why i just don't think it's going to happen like i think it's going to be RJ with that bench unit predominantly. And I'm not so unhappy about that because if you are like, do I think that they love RJ and that they're super committed to him? And no, I don't, I'm not, I don't live under a rock. I think I've, we've talked about this before, but like, I think there's a reason why they were connected with guys like Paul George and, and Zach Levine this summer. Like I, I feel very, very strongly that, in any iteration of those deals, that was to upgrade on the starting wing spot that RJ Barrett currently occupies. But obviously that hasn't happened because those teams are not interested in dealing at a price the Knicks would be willing to do. Um, I think if you have RJ, you need to put him in lineups and positions. I think you where, need to separate him from Randall. First. Yeah, that's, that's, that's part of it. And then the other part is also just putting him in lineups where it's like you remove some of the some of the things that I don't want to say people use them as excuses, but the things that you can point to and be like, well, this wasn't great. Was it like if RJ Barrett's going to be whatever the best version of him is needs to play in lineups that have more space lineups that have more speed generally uh, and lineups that can probably cover for some of his issues defensively. And like, I like putting him at the four or the three or however you want to f- phrase it with the other three guys on the floor being quickly and, you know, let's say Dante or, or Grimes, who can shoot the rock. Um, and then Hart, who yet he can't shoot it that great. But like, again, if it's RJ and him at the three, four, that's much better than, you know, RJ and him at the two and three. 
and um, having only one big on the floor, he's kind of the guy in that lineup that's going to be leaned on to to get into the paint consistently and collapse the defense. So I think you're putting him in a position now where it's like, hey, look, like these minutes, they've kind of been your minutes before, but now they're your minutes in a way that feels like if there is an upside to him reaching a higher level, and I don't just mean like gradual improvement of skills, but I mean like truly achieving a higher level, like elevating his status as a player. I do think that this is an avenue you need to explore, and I think it's a really good thing that they are leaning into it. Yeah, um, I just think, yeah, I mean, you have all of these good perimeter defenders. At some point, you just say, fuck the size. Like, they can all defend. Grimes can defend threes. Like, I don't care if Grimes is not ideal size for a three. Like, against benches, that's not going to matter. And I think the three of them on defense will be really fun together. They're going to shoot really well. And, uh, and I mean, quickly, like, he's the only guy who had a positive net rating with Randall on that, you know, as you mentioned, that abysmal year three. Um, so, you know, I just think that, um, I think pairing him, like, does Brunson help Randall? Of course. But pairing, like, even in his worst years here, when he plays with quickly, it's not even like quickly gets some easier shots so much as the off-ball gravity and the movement and the, you know, the improved defense really helps Randall. Um, so I like that pairing, too. Yeah, I actually think he plays... Better. The downside is quickly won't get as much on ball reps to the extent that that's your priority. I don't but even they think do play well I, together. Yeah, and I don't think that's really a huge downside because like it's not it's not a problem for me if quickly is at like twenty two usage or something. Like that's fine. Um but like I actually think that they have a more uh natural kind of like complementary play style at times than Brunson and Randall necessarily do. Brunson's just a better player so it like it doesn't it, it kind of makes up for that and then some uh but if you're just talking about like which two like which pairing feels like it, it operates the sum is greater than the part yeah which one is like a little bit more seamless of a fit i think quickly plays better with julius um or at least easier with julius than than brunson does and um yeah like i i think look there's it, it's a nine-man rotation Guys are going to injure it. There'll be plenty of minutes to go around. All these combinations, in theory, should be seeing plenty of time together. And we really should not have to worry about, like, is this guy going to have enough time? Are we going to see enough of these dudes? Are we going to see enough of this combination? Um, I mean, we probably we should harbor those concerns because of what Tibbs' history is as a coach. But, like, um, realistically, asking him to deal with these nine-man nine, nine rotation is not too hard. And And I think... Um, if he can get over the kind of rigidity of rotation stuff, then we could really lean into some rotations and not even just rotations, but like lineup combinations that we haven't seen enough of over the uh, past few years. So like, yeah, I mean, and I, I see this comment too. I wanted to mention this, uh, this is from again from Loki Whitaker. 20, 20, 21, he was getting plenty of minutes against bench units to cook them. That was a little bit different to me because I think that was less about he's playing bench units and more that he was playing with our bench a lot more because our bench was way better than our fucking starters were that year. Um, shout out Alfred Payne. He also he also fit in well with um with Frank. I think you had a long article about at um at PNT about yeah. how 
strength and net rating improved. Um, and his on, Frank was always a, a pretty solid on-off guy, but I do think that he actually weirdly messed, meshed kind of well with Randall. Um, I think guys who know where to cut and know where to be and, and make life easy for Randall in, in his reads are, you know, and quickly obviously way better at that than Frank, but yeah. I think it's it's a lot about, like, if guys are willing to feed Randall offensively, then that usually works pretty well for him um, because he's a good play finisher. And obviously that's part of the reason why the Brunson edition helped so much, right? Is it took away a lot of the creation responsibilities that he had and it was more like, okay, like just focus more on scoring and focus more on getting and shooting from the right places. And like, we don't need you to do the LeJulius James thing anymore. Like you, you can just be, Julius Randall, um, and I think that helped him a lot last year for sure. Um, you know, is it? Is it? Do I am I a Randall believer? I don't know. I the playoffs. It's it's really hard to just like be like I hundred percent believe in him after without any. I just need to see him play well in the playoffs, right? Like that's really what it is. I mean, and to, it's kind of funny. Like I was with, I was actually with, like exactly at this place with Brunson before his 2022 playoffs, where I was like, I mean, even in the regular mean, season. Against Bro- Cleveland, or you mean Dallas? No, no, I mean when he was in Dallas. Because yeah, yeah. even in Dallas, like, he had been a good regular season player. Like, that was not in question, really. It was just about the playoffs with him. And do you, Sorry, real quick, Ted. Do you think if the Knicks had asked for him instead of Dennis Smith Jr. and the yes. KP trade, they would have done it? Yeah. yeah, 100%. I think we had them over a barrel. Like, they probably should have just done it. Um that's an interesting one to play back. But like well it's kinda it's also funny, like if Leon Rose was in that position, one, would we have even traded KP? Would the relationship ever gotten to that point? And two, like, he definitely is gonna ask for fucking Jalen Brunson over Dennis Smith Jr. Um but but like I remember that was my main concern. I was like, look, like he's a good regular season player, there's no doubt about that. I need to see like but if I'm if we were gonna sign this guy to effectively be our starting point guard, which in a lot of ways caps what quickly his role and ceiling and whatever can be with this team, I need to see him like play well in the playoffs. And he played very, very well in the playoffs. So, um, you know, even if I still had reservations about it, I felt a lot better because I saw that. And like with Julius, I don't, I really don't doubt the regular season thing anymore because I think a lot of that was resolved last season where he didn't have a good regular season just because he was hitting shots at some like crazy clip. He was good in the regular season because he just, his process was just a billion times better than it had been previously. Um, but like ultimately if that doesn't carry over into the playoffs, then it's hard to be like to keep continuing to keep faith in him. Right. So um, that's, that's really all I'm thinking about with Julius. Like I, I, I'd be pretty surprised, honestly, if he doesn't have another really, really good regular season this next season. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just the, his role is simplified, and 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 I actually think it could translate to the playoffs, right? Uh, I do think that as much as I think we're like take the ball out of Brunson's hands and run the offense through RJ or something, or are going a little bit further, but there probably is something to the idea that the Knicks probably could, even Randall could benefit from a little bit uh, more ball movement and, you know, sharing the wealth and all of that. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see. I think that this, it is interesting, though, because if you remember that Cleveland game during the regular season where Brunson had 48, 
you watched like the fact that he had a forty eight wasn't what was as much interesting as how fast they played and how much the ball moved and how much of those shots were catch and shoots. Right, I think the person who benefits most from the the Knicks moving the ball around honestly is Jalen Brunson. Shot forty eight percent on catch and shoot threes. I think part of the problem is they don't have a consistent creator. Uh, maybe RJ can get there. I think Randall kind of is what he is. If you can throw him the ball in the post and he draws doubles, fine. But against really good teams in the playoffs, that's not something you can rely on as much. <laughs> but um, but the answer, like I, I like his role is a lot simpler. Like why was he? Like why do you think he was bad in the playoffs? Let's put it like that. Why do I think Julius was bad in the playoffs? Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, I think the people that want to give him the, I don't want to say pass because it, it makes it sound derogatory, but like, if you want to use the injury as an argument for like, hey, look, like the guy was just in a bad spot. It is what it is. I think that's fair. Um, personally, I just think his, it, it just looked like he wasn't, he wasn't, he, he, you can expose his lack of like instantaneous reads. Like he, his inability to make quick reads is the thing that gets him in trouble in the playoffs. And like again, this is also a reason why his clutch numbers I think have sucked even in the regular season. Is that like those are the moments where defenses are a lot more attuned and heightened and are playing with like a heightened awareness and intensity and if you're not making quick decisions or you're, you know, over dribbling and, and unaware of like help defenders and all this type of stuff that, that can really kill you down the stretch of a game. And in the playoffs, obviously that is ramped up for a longer portion of the game and that stuff gets exposed. And like, that's really all I think it is now would, would, if he wasn't injured, would those deficiencies have been exposed as much? Probably not. I mean, definitely not. They wouldn't be because that's how this works. Um, but we haven't seen that yet. So, you know, is that an uncorrectable thing for him? I hope not. That would be great uh, for me as an Knicks fan. But I wouldn't bet my life savings on it that <laughs> that he's going to be able to overcome it because both both the playoff stuff has been just really really disappointing, especially given the the regular seasons he was coming off of in both those instances. Yeah, I, I do think the difference now is like playing off of Brunson, and this is even without like I do think I think somebody at least one of the out of Quinn, Quinn Grimes, Manu Quickly, and RJ Barrett, someone's going to make a play. If you look at the work ethic of these guys, and even RJ, you know, we, I know people are like he hasn't improved. He, he has expanded his mid range game, not as quickly as we'd like, but it has come. Uh, you know, there's been some weight stuff. I, I I don't put that much too much on him. I don't think it was like just not having discipline, I think he tried to gain weight and, and probably didn't manage it as well. It's a tough thing to do, even for professional athletes. Um, and with quickly, like, there's no way to argue against the idea, the fact that he's gotten better each year um, pretty substantially. So, But even leaving aside the idea that one of those guys could take a leap, Randall's job is really to just finish plays. Like He's got to hit open shots. It, it is not like when we watched that Atlanta series, it was very clear, if you ever ask this guy to do this again, like, it's always, this is always what you're going to get. Atlanta wasn't even that good of a defense, right? All you got to do is shade doubles, um, you know, like take away his first read, um, and he's in trouble. Uh, and, and don't let him catch the ball too deep, which they were able to manage. I don't think those are, like, it is possible to get him the ball deeper. 
And people are like, well, he had Bam on him. I, I think, I honestly think he, he, he missed open threes. He was very tentative. That's like a real thing. But there was like, it's not like the circumstances dictated he had to be tentative. You know, I don't know if it was the, you know, the EBGBs or whatever. I don't know. The, the the yips that's what the word I was looking for. Heebie-jeebies. Heebie-jeebies. <laughs> um, you know, it it seems to be this time. It seems very correctable. Uh, now, is that enough? I don't like. We've talked about this. I think if he's not giving you plus defense, it's tough. You don't get like Aaron Gordon gave plus defense. Like you can't think of a team. And I wrote a whole article about this. Besides, like Dirk, you can't tell me a team that won a championship and that was Dirk Nowitzki was pretty good at basketball. In case you have been paying attention uh, nobody wins with a poor defensive four for a variety of reasons or any poor defensive big really i don't think Jokic is a bad defensive big by the way i think Jokic is and he, he's gotten a lot better and also like he's and he's a better defender than randall yeah, and he's like, he's also playing at like fucking 15 billion levels above what julius gave yeah. which is not even insulting to julius it's just he's the ridiculous best player in the world yeah yeah that's, that's the thing um so I think you know it's fair to bring those things up, but do I think he'll shoot better? Yeah, I think I think he'll be more efficient. I don't think it's hard for him. To, like I think like he just has to you know take more of the thinking away and just kind of focus on just shooting and attacking the rim. And um, and I, I think he'll get there. Um, it's is that enough to offset if he doesn't improve on defense? Is it enough to offset the fact that you know he would be the third option or he would be not living up to what you would exactly want from a second option. I don't know, but I, like, can he be an efficient playoff player? Absolutely. I think, um, I did want to ask, um, sorry. I don't, did you want to answer this from Ace or? Oh yeah. I just wanted to bring it up. Cause I think it's a good point. Uh, Randall's injured and constantly went at Mobley and bam. We got to do a better job of not having him go at the opposing team is better. I mean, I think that's, that's, that's part, part of it. But part of it was like, the team's best defenders that we played were power forwards, right? Yeah, and and also like, there's, it, it's a lot easier to get switches for guards than it is to like get the switch for a big guy to attack. And like, As another reason I think it's good for him to play quickly though, because quickly sets good screens. You know? Yeah, and, and I just think that at the end of the day, like, it is. One, it says something about Randall that those guys are defending him, that they were earmarked as the primary defenders on him. Like that's that so yes, clearly opponents are game planning for Julius Randall. Um but that's like the Lakers put A D on Jokic, right? The Lakers put Mo- Bam on, on Jokic. So like, everybody they're sorry, the Heat put Bam on Jokic. So, like everybody puts their best defenders on the opponent's best players. So it's like, is your best better than my best? I mean, and, and like, I, I don't want to boil down every playoff series to just like, oh, it's just your best guys. But like, you do need your best guys to be able to at least replicate production to a certain level against the best defenders and best defensive teams. And, um, you know, it's in a, unavoidable that he's going to face those guys when we go up against quality opponents. So like, I... I agree that there should be more that we do to disguise things offensively, but like at the end of the day, I don't know how much how, I don't know how much you can um, avoid those matchups for Julius. I just think he's got to be better in them. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, before we get out of here, I did want to ask you since you 
are a movie guy and recently saw Oppenheimer. Care to share with our listeners your thoughts on the movie? Were you offended by the fact that they desecrated the the sacred Bhagavad Gita with uh, with nudity? No, I was a big fan of that. Actually, uh, I actually some of the responses to that to the Florence Pew scenes are just ridiculous. Like fucking people just need to do grow better. up. Yeah, yeah, get a life. Yeah, it's like just just Jesus Christ. Um, I thought the movie was great. I thought it was a masterpiece. I think it's Nolan's best movie. Um, I think it is going to be regarded and maybe already is as an all-time classic. Um, I were you, were you a big Cillian Murphy or Killian Murphy fan before this movie? Yeah, I like Killian Murphy. Um, I've watched Peaky Blinders. I think he's awesome in that. Obviously, I've seen the Batman movies. I actually kind of wish he like had a bigger role in the last two, but I obviously I know why you can't. And I did like that he had he held court in The Dark Knight Rises. That was funny. Um, probably one of the more enjoyable parts of that movie. Um, yeah, I think he's... I actually rewatched Dunkirk over the weekend. I thought he was awesome in that movie for, I mean, a strange war movie, but actually I think... I, I liked it a lot more this time, having seen it, than I did uh, the first time I, I watched. Yeah, I mean, I, I like Killian Murphy. I think he's a really, really good actor. I think he's talented. And I thought this was like a... This is kind of like his... I mean, I think everybody knows who he is, but this feels like a definite coming out party for him, at least as far as like American audiences are concerned. Um, so yeah, I, I thought he was a great pick to be Oppenheimer. The movie itself was incredible. The the entire cast was incredible. I thought Emily Blunt was awesome in it. I thought Florence Pugh was awesome in it. Um, I think Robert Downey Jr. is probably going to get nominated for an Oscar. I thought Obviously, Matt Damon was really good at it. What's what's his name? Um, the guy that played Roger, uh, Jason Clark. He was fucking awesome in that movie. Like, I didn't even, I didn't like. It kept bothering me the whole time, and then I realized it was Jerry West from um, Yeah, in Winning <laughs> Time. And I was like, holy shit, that's it. Yeah, but he he was amazing in that movie. Um, I just think like I've thought I've talked about this with uh, friend of the pod, Nick's Illustrator before, um, but like I think Nolan. He tries a lot of shit and doesn't always like he doesn't always hit all the high notes. I thought this was like I, I this is not an original take, but I really did I did think of this originally before I realized this was a take everybody had. Um but it felt like this was a movie where he everything he'd been working for, like everything he'd been trying in all these different movies, like Tenet, fucking Interstellar, Inception and and uh, and then all like Inception's incredible. I love Interstellar. Um, I think Dunkirk's really, really good. Like his filmography. Did you like the Batman movies? Or? I love The Dark Knight. I actually think Batman Begins is fucking awesome too. The Dark Knight Rises is like fun, but also just like so we just love cops now. That that's the message <laughs> here. Um, it's a little bit, little bit concerning about that one, uh, but like I, I just think he nailed everything. I just thought it was like uh, you know it was like his. You know how, like, look, Steph's won four championships, right? But he needed the fourth one. Like, he really needed that fourth one. This is like, <laughs> no one's, like, made a lot of fucking awesome movies, but he, like, this was the movie, I think, that he needed to to be more than just, like, oh, he's, like, a fuck. He has a huge following, and he's a really fun director, and he makes b- big blockbuster action movies. But, like, has he made, like, a truly great 
piece? Like, has he made like a great, great film? And I just think this absolutely was in every way. And he got great performances from all the actors, all everybody in it, which, which is like, you know, a great coach getting great performances from his players. So, um, I also, yeah. it's just, it's a subject matter, which I think a lot of people have at takes like, Oh, you're glorifying something horrible. I thought they took the right tone. I don't think, I think it showed that like, basically these are impossible, almost moral questions being put in the hands of flawed, but not completely flawed people. Like, I don't think there's any real, no one's really a bad, like they don't really show Nazis. So there aren't really bad guys in the movie, right? Like, I don't think Robert Downey Jr.'s character is supposed to be a straight up villain. Like he's a flawed person in many ways doing what he thinks he's doing best. Like, Obviously, he's you know crafty and like a little bit maybe unscrupulous, but I think the whole point was that like I, I think it took that it wasn't amoral, but I think it um, it did a good job of, of showing you know how challenging these questions are and that like and not glorifying the people that like these are just normal people who are flawed who had to who were in this position and, and this is what happened. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, I mean, I, I, first of all, if you watch that movie and your takeaway is like they glorified. Oppenheimer, like, I, I don't know, maybe don't watch movies, like, they're not for <laughs> you. But, um, yeah, I, I think that they did a really good job of, I, I didn't think they was, I didn't even really feel like they took a strong stance on, um, on no, no, he definitely didn't leak any information to the Soviets or the Russians. Like, they made it very obvious that, like, that was ambiguous. Like it was very ambiguous how they handled all of that. You know, he wouldn't answer the question directly. Uh, he has a conversation early in the movie with, with Florence Pugh's character um, where he's talking about like, Oh, like, cause she's like, are you a communist? Or are you not a communist? And he's like, look, I, I like to have a little wiggle room. And the entire movie is like him not, taking a stance on on a variety of things and like the moral dilemmas he faces that he is unable or incapable of necessarily taking hard line stances on. And then, you know, like he leads this Manhattan project, which creates obviously the nuclear weapon. And then like teams now probably feeling a lot of regret about it. But even in the face of that, he can't fully walk away from this because now he feels obligated to like try to prevent the future proliferation of nuclear weapons and i just think it was a great movie and i don't think there were easy answers that were given to you by nolan as the director of the movie i thought again the performances were really good um i did think robert downey's robert downey jr's character uh, strauss was meant to be like a villain in the sense that because what he does is unambiguously bad right like some of the things but it's also i think he has he raises some rightful concerns right oh of course like i mean that and that's part of it like he's it isn't like again it's not clear that you know like did he leak information to the soviets i don't know but it seems pretty weird that he was like so adamant they're like no he's like fucking eight or 15 years behind us and it's like really are you sure (laughs) like they just tested a nuke i don't think they are um, and he's like, you know, uh, the hydrogen bomb won't work and all those type of things are, I think are interesting, but yeah, I mean, if you haven't seen it, I definitely recommend checking it out. I thought that movie was, uh, honestly, it's incredible. It's, it's, it, I think it'll easily go down as Nolan's best work, um, which is funny, but like, I also don't know if it'll win all the awards because I anticipate that like Killers of the Flower Moon, which comes out in the fall is going to be fucking awesome too. 
So uh, should be a fun. Did you see Barbie yet? Or I have not seen Barbie yet. I do need to go see that. Did you? I have not. So, uh, and I also I saw I went opening night, so I could not get tickets. Uh, I sat in. I haven't seen it in seventy millimeter oh. uh, or IMAX, so I'm going to see Oppenheimer again. But uh, yeah, I also are you going to try to do Barbenheimer? No, I. I um, it, that is, I mean, like three hours on its own is enough. Like my mom used to tell me when she was in India, they would they would do double features of Bollywood yeah. movies. So just take and an entire day. I don't think I could do that when I was a kid. Uh, I definitely can't do that now. I, I need a nap or uh, you know a little uh, an eat ball or something in the middle to, to get through it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! All right, I think that's a good place to end it. Uh, Stacy, let the people know where they can find you and plug anything you'd like to plug. Uh, Stacy Patton eighty nine on the app formerly known as Twitter. Um, nothing to plug. Um, just I'll plug the WNBA coverage we have on the Strickland right now, the Liberty, um, and then um, yeah, I mean it's uh, the off season can be a little bit heavy, so to go go out, have fun, uh, and uh, yeah. Uh, but other than that, uh, nothing else to plug. Um. Yeah, I have nothing to plug myself, so I will just plug all the work at the Strickland. Check out the pods, check out uh, articles, all that stuff. Check out our store, follow us on Instagram, follow us on YouTube. That would be a huge help to us. And uh, aside from that, just want to mention the show is brought to you again by betonline.ng. Uh, that is our show for today. I hope everybody has a great, great week, and I'll see you on Friday. <laughs>